This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Russell, and today we have the returns of, um, he is the leading light of uh, uh, Sarani Simbang. It's a community uh, involving uh, Sarani people. Vernon Adrian Among. Hi, Cam. Thank you for Uh, having me. Ah, great to have you back. And we have uh, the return of, uh, she is Dr. Anne Lee. Hi, Cam. Uh, older members of um, the audience will remember her from her newscasting days on RTM. Our three topics this week, are, topic number one is, uh, what is the role and function of universities, or rather what should be the role and functions of universities in society? Topic number two is the indefensibility of offendedness. And finally, topic number three is uh, Palindungan Lubis's memoir, An Indonesian in Nazi Concentration Camps. I know nothing about that, and I'm looking forward to finding out. So, uh, topic number one. Uh, So, Malaysia's um, leading educationalist, Unku Aziz, died Mm -hmm. recently at the age of, I think, 92. And he had been, amongst other things, the longest-serving vice-chancellor at University of Malaya, also the first Malaysian to hold the role of... Um, oh, was he really? Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Uh, and just to be clear, it's actually the vice-chancellor who does all the, the running of the university. Operational, yeah. Yeah, the, the chancellor is... Um, figurehead. Ceremonial. Ceremonial figurehead. And uh, he also uh, set up the cooperative movement in Malaysia, and, uh, and he did that because of his uh, interests, his keen interests as an academic in economics. And so it made me think about University of Malaya. I think that University of Malaya did have a golden age, and I don't think it's golden ages right now. But it made me wonder about what is the proper role and function of a university in society beyond simply just uh, young people go there, study, get their degrees or fail, and then enter society. But it's other functions. And I, and, I, and I suspect we're going to be talking about history as much as contemporary. But I'm going to start the ball rolling about with the notion of uh, research, that a university should be a place which is conducting research in all sorts of fields, which industry is not interested in. It could be, for instance, in the case of Oxford University recently, they, they helped yes. develop um, a vaccine for COVID-19. But it could also be mm-hmm. research in literature and language, things which seemingly have no practical economic application. I mean, if a university isn't going to do it, who else is going to do it? And we need to fill out our knowledge in these areas. I should point out quickly, also perhaps full disclosure, I personally did not go to university, and Vernon did, and it's a regret in my life that I never did. I feel its absence. <laughs> uh, but Anne, you're you're um, you're a doctor. Recently, you're joining the academic world. You must think that universities have these needs. These needs have some something to do for us. Uh, <laughs> I recognise that you know university education, at least I mean at PhD PhD level, is um, a sort of rare air to breathe, and that's because of. Uh, I mean, universities are very much, I think, part of a kind of power elite structure uh, that does uh, uh, um, work very much in favor of, of keeping certain people, certain classes in power. That's, that's for sure. Um, 
and why am I there? Because it is the space for me to um, read, research, and write. And hope you know you are generating or trying to generate um, knowledge uh, and perspective that maybe you have not read or heard so much of. So you want to add that to the existing shelves. That was an interesting session about universities being um, kind of like functioning to keep certain classes in power? Well, I, I think if you, if you go back to the beginnings of universities, certainly European universities, um, they were dedicated to the first university in Europe being Bologna and then Oxford and Paris. They were dedicated to creating a kind of establishment consensus of knowledge. They were not there to rock the boat and shock the world with new ideas, but rather to train the, the noble classes in decorum and behavior and social okay. practices and stuff well, like that. Yeah, and also just the, these are the things that we believe now go out into the world. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I mean, I think even, you know, you, Azhar University, I mean, the, the history, I think, of the, what, we, what we know as universities now is usually, you know, the case is, is not what they were then. Uh, um, and I think I agree with the idea that, you know, they were um, even more from what I know anyway, the places a lot, a lot of the times it's, a, you know, monks studying subjects that are um, more religious oriented and then only later the subjects begin to expand. But yes, very much to do with sort of giving what is the official version of what we should be learning. Right. But okay. they're full of young people and young people are full of hormones and young people are full of crazy ideas that can threaten the world. And so it's, it becomes a strange situation where you have a pressure cooker of, of young people and their ideas, but at the same time, you're trying to perhaps even breed conformity. But I wonder, like Vernon, I mean, you, you, you studied actually overseas, your university, yes. and, yeah. and, I, and I do believe you enjoyed it. Very much. And part of the enjoyment would have been the, just the being the young person independent bit. And the freedom to question anything. I mean, like I remember, very, very vividly, how I came across an essay in, I went to what is now known as Curtin University. At that point in time, it was the Western Australian Institute of uh, Technology. And they had a newspaper, a student campus newspaper called The Grok, G-R-O-K. And I remember picking it up my first year, and there was an essay. I wish I had cut out that essay and kept it, but it said that the best place for a revolution to, to begin is in a university so that it can be contained and argued over and discussed and, you know, handled with civility. And uh, I was so impressed by reading that, that it made so much sense, you know, for, for revolutionary ideas, uh, dissents, etc., to be contained in a place which was actually created to do that kind of thing. You know, it's quite interesting. So then forums and discussions, etc., would be perhaps maybe a keystone of universities where academics who uh, come with informed ideas are able to talk about it in, in, in ways that don't really, as you say, rock the boat. I mean, it rocks the boat, but you know, the boat's still on an even keel uh, because the, the waters are calm, you know, that kind of thing. You know? mm. Whereas outside of campus where people can react without informed uh, without without an informed uh, uh, mind, 
you know, might be reacting from a purely emotional angle, mm. you know, if that makes sense, yeah. And yet there's a kind of um, a sort of romanticization maybe of the university it's, it's place for students because I think they are deeply political organizations, you know, I mean, I mean in terms of oh, yeah. the structure, mm. right? Not, not just of the, the, yes, the yes. access to students and... Um, and what they can avail themselves and how they enjoy. Uh, I mean, I, th I think that, you know, the idea of a university, at least as I understand, is, is that it's not meant to be so vocational so much as your ability to think, you know, that idea of you mm. put a thesis and then what is the antithesis or antithesis and then what's ultimately the synthesis, you know, I mean, that is a simple way of, of of i think kind of what you're supposed to be able to do when you come out yeah. you know so so yeah as, as a as a cauldron of new ideas i think it, it can be helpful but like for a university such as i mean you mentioned oxford earlier uh, cam i mean when when in 2006 um i, I was doing um, masters and even then the proportion of people who attend the university a very high number come from only 10% of the school going population. Mm. So you still have this really very, very real inequity between the kind of people who can go to Oxford uh, 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 and, and avail themselves of, of what Vernon mentioned, you know, this idea that you can think and, and, and you know, really yeah. re-examine re, you know, re what your own thoughts are. You, you'll be put against all sorts of different opinions and you have to struggle and you have to figure out what, what they are. But that kind of skill and strength is, is really very limited still. And it's limited here too. You know, I was interviewed by Sharad Kutan several years ago when I was actually in corporate training. And um, one of the uh, things that I was doing was training uh, fresh graduates with employability skills. And so one of his questions was, uh, why exactly is this necessary? And uh, I, I kind of like thought for a bit and I thought, okay, maybe it's because of the commodification of education. And there's so many people coming in that there's less time for students to spend with, um, you know, their, their lecturers or tutors or deans to get to the depth of what they're trying to understand and learn and be able to discuss it. So it's just kind of like, you know, uh, digesting stuff thrown at them. Not enough time to ruminate over it not enough time to look for different angles of seeing and stuff like that yeah so is, that, is that is that what's happening I, I believe that's what's happening in our present day universities well yeah well we have to move on though uh but can i just ask you both quickly so i didn't go to university did i miss out are you better than me you're better looking than me that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> so that counts for a lot more Okay, so yeah, who needs university? No, I think it's a good thing. <laughs> Universities are good. And so we move on though to um, perhaps aptly, I don't know, the uh, topic number two, which is the indefensibility of offendedness. Vernon. Uh -huh. Yes, yeah. That's an issue that uh, I came up with after wondering um, what to talk about based on current affairs. And uh, the thing that's happened recently is that um, our wonderful Malaysian Chinese rapper, rocker, filmmaker, Nam Wee, uh, launched a video recently where he basically took on, he confronted the uh, detractors of his recent filmmaking adventure. And the film is actually filmed using Malaysians of every race, is filmed using languages found in Malaysia from every race, and is about a multicultural school that erupts into kind of like violence and stuff like that. 
and he's in Taiwan showing the movie and going around the world with the movie, actually bringing a lot of good in presenting Malaysia to the world. Maybe not through the lens of a movie itself, but through the lens of creativity, innovation, filmmaking, prowess, etc. You know, he's doing something really worthwhile. So he's saying, why are you, you know, getting to me in this way? And he says that it's, he outlines that it's, it's, it's actually racial politics. And uh, I was thinking about the idea of offendedness and how, yeah, it is in a sense, a way to assume power at a point in time that maybe might actually be self-serving more than anything else. Mm, yeah. And didn't one of your plays offend people once upon a time? I can't, I can't quite remember, wasn't it? No. Was it, was it no uh, well, I mean, uh, offend is, is to upset to the point of... of, of um, lodging a police report. Reference of, <laughs> lodging a police report. No, 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 no. no oh, you didn't? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but as we... Oh, this is such a... Both a familiar and... and dreadfully familiar kind of topic, right? I mean, in terms of the use of power to um, something that's ostensibly, it seems to be about one thing actually is, is, is multi-layered and, you know, the efforts to say, you know, censor imposed an official version of a truth vis-a-vis -vis the context and the rights of others to be able to figure it out for themselves or not. Um, I haven't seen the film, but I did hear the rap that he was originally famous for. And uh, it seems to me that he's, he's quite adept at, at knowing, you know, what to use to create um, conversation around ethnic issues and what is, what is it to be Malaysian and so forth. So, some, you know, choosing a title like Bobby for your film is already going to be, I think, controversial. It's easy. It's a simple, simple one. Um, so when attention is drawn to the film that way, how can we watch it in order to see and judge for ourselves? Um, because you can say, well, you do that, you're asking for attention to be paid to a certain extent, right? So, so why are you doing that? Um, well, because you want to be able to call a film Bobby, uh, just like Disney or whoever it was that created the Babe. film about Babe, oh, yeah. 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 Um, but in this case, of course, has that much more power uh, as a word of emotive value. But doesn't the uh, recipient of the word then give it that power? I mean, you can look at the word and go, ha, I know what you're up to. I will refuse to uh, react to it in the way you probably want me to react and therefore take a step back. Yeah, but know? everybody's got an opportunity for free publicity here. I also have not seen the film. But the creator of the movie, by, by putting such a provocative word on it, is, which, by the way, is one of the oldest Malay words, universal from Hawaii to Madagascar. Um, it's, uh, by putting that, it's, just, it's like dropping bait into the water and, and seeing what bites. And the ones that bite are the ones who also want to get publicity. And uh, it becomes an unvirtuous uh, circle. Mm. I, yeah. which, which makes me, I mean, I, I, I have no idea what the film is like. It might be a masterpiece. I have no idea. But it does well, make it, me feel... In the video, you need to see the video of his explanation or his, uh, his uh, um, response to the detractors. He says, how can you call me racist when, you know, I have included, um, you know, other people 
from your community to work closely with me. And I've done this so many times. Can you not see it? With satire, satire is supposed to punch upwards. And what is above is authority and power. But it's the power that, that is being satirized. It's not the race per se. Yes, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is the, the position that they feel they are challenged at, you know. Ooh. Yeah, but haven't you been offended, Vernon, ever? Of course I've been offended, but... Um, and you're entitled, to, you're entitled to be, feel offended? Uh, yeah, you are entitled to feel offended, but I think it's important to realize how then you should manifest the response, you know. And I think this comes from perhaps critical thinking, because the, the level of offendedness in the world and in this country at this point in time is in a sense uh, pretty crazy when you think about it. And I was thinking that, is it because, you know, our media cycles are so short that we feel in order to come to grips with anything that's going on that affects us, we need to respond really quickly. And in responding really quickly, usually it's the emotions that drive us rather than you know, our reasoned minds. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And on yeah. that bombshell, we have to move on. Okay. Because <laughs> uh, in a moment, we're going to find out uh, what sounds like a potentially fascinating history of an Indonesian in Nazi concentration camps here on a Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Raslan, Vernon Adrian Emong, and Dr. Anne Lee. And now uh, Anne Lee's going to tell us about Palin Dongan Lubis's memoir, An Indonesian in Nazi Concentration Camps. Thank you, Cam. Yeah, um, actually, I mean, sorry, it's, it's, a, uh, it's actually titled... Uh, the autobiography, his autobiography. But yeah, Orang Indonesia di Camp Konsentrasi Nazi. It's published in 2006 by Communitas Bambu and KITLV, which is sort of like Leiden University's uh, publishing. The reason it comes up for me at the moment is, is I've been thinking about this book for quite some time. I mean, since it was published. Uh, uh, and... Um, he lived from 1910 to 1994. Um, he's uh, Batak, um, originally from um, North Sumatra. And he, his is such an interesting history because I think, you know, when we think about um, Nazi concentration camps, it's such a, a very European framework, right? I mean, of, within Europe, the concentration camps were all over Europe. Yep. Um, and even though if you think about Orang Indonesia, in Indonesian context, then you think of Wuru, you know, there are concentration camps in Southeast Asia too. But this autobiography is interesting because he was in Leiden University in the 1930s. Um, That's in the Netherlands, just, just to be clear. Uh, Leiden University in Holland. In, in, in the Netherlands, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he was studying medicine. But he was also, he's also considered a kind of, um, I mean, people frame him as an Indonesian nationalist because he was... He was part of the Persatuan Pemuda Pelajar Indonesia and later the um, Perhimpunan Indonesia, you know, the, the students' um, organization, youth organization, working to find for independence and finding you know, the notion of a national language. And that's the reason why he, he is arrested. When the Nazis uh, 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 um, invade the Netherlands, he's actually arrested as a political prisoner. And he's sent to various uh, concentration camps, two in the Netherlands, it's uh, Schul and Amersfoort, and in Germany, um, Buchenwald and Sachsenhausen. 
and this is between the period of 1940 to 1945. For me, you know, I mean, when, when I was in boarding school, I studied the Second World War and, uh, uh, concentration camps, and there was never any notion, of course I knew, you know, Pink Triangle with those prisoners persecuted for, um, uh, uh, as understood to be homosexuals, but political prisoners, I think they were purple triangles. Um, and I never really thought, I just thought that they were kind of um, bad hats, criminals, and, and you know, uh, uh, just why were they political? I, I never really thought about it. Um, and And of course, in this case, because of the agitation to, you know, offload the whole colonial enterprise. And he refers to meeting Vietnamese or the equivalent wow. of Vietnamese and, and they're speaking French and he's speaking Dutch and they have this kind of smattering of, of you know, they, they have an understanding of one another, the, the, the languages in which they have been, you know, studying. Um, and, uh, and they talk, they find common ground in, in these spaces. Um, and I think that it totally for me upends how I have thought around the concentration camp history, because especially in his case, his is a very, you know, if you look at it sort of intersectionally, he, he's a male, um, he was actually married. He was having, he'd started, um, uh, practice and he's arrested by the Dutch secret police um, and then taken. So when he ends up in Buchenwald, for instance, you know, he is in a cell, a very t small cell. He's tortured. He, he also worked, has to work seven days a week, 14 hours a day. You know, the kind of uh, um, familiar aspects of, of a, a, you know, concentration camp that you're familiar with. But then he becomes an orderly because of his medical background and an orderly in the nonsensical notion of what a, a, a hospital is or what a, a clinic is in Buchenwald. In um, an extermination camp. <laughs> yes, exactly. Again, you know, familiarity with Jewish Holocaust literature. I mean, you've got sort of, I think it's Elie Wiesel who, who kind of, I think, Sometimes, you know, it's, a, it's not purple, but it's, it's very, very kind of dramatic, the language. It's very shocking. Um, and you would think maybe, well, I would expect it to be. But then you have someone like Primo Levi who writes in a very sort of matter-of-fact way, maybe to do with, you know, his sort of, he's a chemist. And, you know, he sort of says, I looked at my watch to find the time and there was a tattoo. You know, uh, it, it's almost the kind of dead, the understated way in which he writes uh, about his time. Uh, I mean, he's talking about... Auschwitz, but so, so you you you've read it. You read it in Indonesia, Bahasa Indonesia, or yes, yes, yeah. Right, yes. right. I mean, it took me. It it had, still hasn't been translated into English, and I think the moment it is, I think it will have quite an important uh, uh, impact on 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 uh, the literature and history, such as 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 at least I mean, from a Southeast Asian perspective, anyway, because it is so unusual. It's still. But also because, you know, he talks about how there's an encounter with a patient. I say patient in inverted commas, right? He's, from the description, is he's a, formerly he was been a very wealthy, upper class Jewish businessman, I'm not sure, but from Austria. And um, he refuses to be treated by a brown doctor. This kind, why wouldn't we expect all this kind of, you know, fracture of difference in opinion and political identity be, be, be also present. You know, it's just that there's such a dominant narrative around uh, Jewish Holocaust literature that, that I think this book is so 
compelling for that reason. It's so unusual and it's... Um, yeah, completely um, different angle because yeah. 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 seeing the in, in, inter, intersectionality happening. Is that what you... Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, um, I mean, that's what I mean to say is, you know, sort of gender, age, sexuality, um, class, um, uh, ability and Inter- so forth. Th- those kinds of aspects. So it's not just, you know, when, mm. if you think about, well, you know, what would be a, a person who was a typical Jewish person in Auschwitz or whatever, you know, you may have a certain yeah. point of view and, and, and it's yeah. important to break that up, you know, in terms of a reality of all the kinds of differences that happen. Mm. Um, I mean, th- th- it has to be stressed, this is an incredibly rare story. It's, uh, uh, it-, it was ultimately a, a you know, a, a Jewish Holocaust, but, um, but there were political prisons. But actually, in the, I think it was in Buchenwald as well, but in one of, one of the Western concentration camps at the same time, there was um, a, the British uh, parachuted in uh, secret agents into occupied France uh, as civilians. And there was this one woman who was parachuted in, and she was a, a radio operator. And she was eventually caught. Uh, there was a chase across rooftops, gunfire and all that kind of thing. They finally caught her. And she was taken to, to one of the concentration camps and shot. The thing is, she was Indian. Um, she, mm. was either, she was either completely Indian, I can't remember, or half Indian, uh, which in itself would have been incredibly rare in those days. And she was a proud member of the British Empire. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. <laughs> she, was, you know, yeah, she, was, yeah. she was doing her part. By taking on this incredibly dangerous role of being a radio operator, and and the, they they had a lifespan of like three months, they were, it was the expectation that they would be caught in no time at all, that they weren't going to come back. I don't know if they told her that. Um, uh, you know, so yeah, these bizarre to our eyes now uh, yeah. stories that sort of makes make no sense in the historical trajectories that we imagine when we chart. And yeah, and have been informed by you know. Yeah political structure that uh, reigned supreme, I guess. Do you know if, the, if, if your fellow is, is this a well-known story in Indonesia, Anne? Uh, well, he, I mean, I think when, because, you know, he, he requested that they, it, to, to send it, they, it couldn't be um, published until, you know, a, a X number of times after he had passed away. Uh, so the fact that it has been, you know, now we're 2020, it was published in 2006. It did get a lot of attention initially because of the reasons that, you know, we are s- still talking about. Um, but because Primo Levi is one of my favorite writers, uh, then I keep up with kind of Jewish Holocaust literature. And I don't see it having made any kind of real dent in the kind of writing of journals around um, uh, the subject, um, the history of, of uh, the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust. Um, so, and I think that's primarily to do with the fact that it hasn't been translated into English yet. Uh, and I'm sure it must be. Uh, um, and perhaps, you know, it, it, it but be. But get Amir Muhammad to do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good idea. But do you, do, you, do, you know if, uh, do you know anything about his uh, post-war life and politics yes, in Indonesia? Yes, so, so, so he, first of all, he had, after the war is declared over, he makes it back to Amsterdam, back to his wife. Uh, and from, I think it's 1947 to 1950, he, he is based in Yogya and he becomes, um, he works in the health department uh, uh, of, of 
an, an arm of the Ministry of Defense, um, and then actually has starts up his practice again in Kabairan Baru, you know, right in Jakarta itself. And uh, he kind of stays away from politics. You know, he really, having been a very much, you know, within the organization. And I, it, it's been said that, you know, under, when he was um, head of Pahimpunan Indonesia, it kind of shifted from, this is one claim anyway, that it shifted from being less communist and more socialist. Uh, um, uh, but certainly when he comes back, he, he, there's no overt political uh, um, activity right. uh, in any political parties. Because right. um, it would have been a horrible irony if he'd, if he'd survived the concentration camps of the Second World War and then been killed in the massacres of 1965. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And he lives, he lives through all of that. You know, I, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's why it's so... The two, uh, the two worst uh, pogroms of the 20th century, he survived. Yeah. 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 And, and as a doctor, uh, uh, and, you know, where you, you know, your, your ability to give life, to heal, to, to, to you know, also is, is, comes against all of this. It's rendered both useless uh, and, and, you know, must have informed yeah, yeah. a lot of the deeply ironic, I mean, because he begins as, as such an idealist, you know, wanting to free the yoke of mm. colonial power and control and then lives through, okay, then off they go. Uh, and of course, colonial claws are tougher than all that. Um, but yeah, he, the whole communist mm, mm. Um, killing... Well, Amazing story, and thank you for telling us. Um, can I mean the book is available somehow in Bahasa Indonesia, of course. Yeah, I mean if you Google it, it's KITLV Press, which is Leiden University's um, All right, okay. academic press. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So this this is the kind of thing you get from a bit of culture, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it only happens when Anne Lee is on. So. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, well, last time you hear it, was to you. well, yeah, but no, last time it was like the world of toothpaste, and today it's uh, Indonesian <laughs> guy who survived the Nazi concentration camps. Well, the full spectrum, full <laughs> spectrum. So anyway, we must move on. Uh, thanks for that, Anne. And um, we move on to the final part of the show: recommendations, where we uh, recommend something that we think might be of interest. Now, also last week died um, the great author John Le Carre, referred to as a spy novelist. Um, but he was so much more. And when I first picked up his books, I thought, oh, spy stories, espionage, it's gonna be silly, you know? But it, straight away, it's really deeply observed uh, interior worlds and uh, uh, the grubbiness and the betrayals of, um, yeah, a life of espionage, which is a life of cheap wireism, really. Um, listening in on people's conversations, trying to find out what people are thinking and doing, and then and always being let down. The little people always get let down. And his books are sensational. And I can't, I mean, I just recommend him straight away. But I think if, you're, if you are interested in one of the great novelists um, who lived in our own time, died only last week, and you haven't read anything, I would suggest starting with his famous book, uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Mm. Yeah, good God. I read it when I was like, yeah, long time ago. I never finished them. I have to confess. I, they're just such a, such a, um, a world of men doing. Yeah. Lots of men. 
But I think that I think that at first, because he's been right, he'd been writing since the gosh, I think fifties. I think at first there was a sort of like manly men doing manly men things. Mm. But I think as the years grew by, he became suspicious of manly men doing manly men things. <laughs> so that, um, I mean, in that industry, in the world of espionage, you know, women do play a part, but men uh, are the power brokers. And so he's talking about people in power abusing their power. And they happen to be men, by and large. So uh, Little Drummer Girl is, is uh, one where he certainly talks about women and, and how women just, everybody just gets used and abused in the system. Um, but yeah, I, I think he's terrific. Uh, and uh, not listening to what Anne says, she's completely wrong. She didn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so. I, would, I, would, I would give, you know, like of all the books you want to read, of course you want to read you know, someone who's a master. Yes, you know, and I need to read a master. And, and, you know, I mean, clearly his books appeal to many kinds of writers. Uh, um, but that was, yeah, that was my honest... Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It is, and and it's glaringly obvious by absence, and and that's something in itself. You know. So, um, uh, so that, yeah, John Le Carre, uh, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, uh, but you know, take it on advisement from Dr. Anley, who I respect enormously. Uh, so, <laughs> next, uh, Vernon. Okay, well, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, moving on from my topic, which was about the indefensibility of, 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 of offendedness, uh, it was also partly uh, inspired by a particular website and podcast that I'd come across called The Daily Stoic, as in daily, T-O-I-C dot com, The Daily Stoic, and it's, uh, it says Daily Stoic, Ancient Wisdom for Everyday Life. And basically, it tries to recount um, and revive the ways of the ancient Stoics, which included Marcus Aurelius, an emperor of Rome, whose books were devoured by Nelson Mandela, and it gave him the strength to live through his incarceration of 28 years. Uh, so I think there are gems of wisdom there that might be able to help us deal with this really cluttered and distracting world. So that's my recommendation, the, the Daily Stoic, which is at dailystoic.com. Um, and they've also got a podcast. And uh, one of the things that Stoicism teaches is restraints. And so it's not reacting so quickly when something offends you or upsets you. And therefore, that helps to minimize offendedness. Well, I think that, uh, just to say that Vernon, I think, um, has been uh, saying the word in its original Russian, uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, whereas, I mean, I mean, it might be more familiar in, in English as Stoic and Stoicism. And uh, Vernon, you're going to have to come back and tell us about Stoicism uh, one day. <laughs> Something I, I don't fully understand. Is it kind of like, um, you know... Well, so go to Daily Stoic. It'll explain it to you. Okay. I mean, we haven't got time now, but it's like, it's like, oh, it's not so bad. Don't worry. You know, calm down. <laughs> Isn't that Stoicism? Um, so that's the Daily Stoic uh dot com you say yeah and they have a podcast dailystoic.com and there's a podcast there there's a podcast cool cool and on that note um we we bring to an end this week's show 
And uh, only reminds me now to thank uh, our special guest, Vernon Adrian Among. Uh, it, it, and it has to be all those names. Yes. <laughs> and, branding, branding. Yes. And uh, Anne Lee. Uh, and Anne, yeah, uh, thank you for the remarkable story. I'm going to have to look him up. And um, You can. Thank you, Vernon. And, uh, and myself, Cam Raslan. And so uh, please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.